0: You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future. But until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading is from 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1-6. through
1: Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with the household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking to, with Gehazi, the, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things Elijah has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha has restored the dead of, to life, behold, the woman whose son he has restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is a woman, and here is her son whom Elijah restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, so the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left and, le- and the land until now. This is the word of the Lord, and it is given to our church for her good.
0: Thanks Diana. Thanks, Diana. Let's pray, and then we'll spend a couple of minutes reflecting on this passage. Would you first join me in prayer? Lord, you have um, changed the world and changed people's lives through this, your word, especially through it preached, and yet um, we are a people filled with distractions, with a lot of things to do this week to come, a lot of things to be worried about and anxious about, and so now we ask that you would calm our hearts and focus our minds so that we could find you in your word and in your word have a real encounter with you. And in your word, see Jesus, our Savior, in our hope, and in seeing him, find ourselves caught up in worshiping him, and delighting in what he has done for us, and knowing more and more uh, that he is ours. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, Friday, uh, I along, I'm guessing with some of you who are on the Rogers Network, was without internet uh, all day. And... I, like many of you, found myself loitering around coffee shops to try to just get enough Wi-Fi to download my emails because I was waiting for something, or to make a FaceTime call or a WhatsApp call uh, through the internet to try to connect with someone that I was supposed to meet up with. Um, I found the whole city quite interesting as it related to the Rogers outage. I had one neighbor that was you know, trying to get me to start drinking at 10 a.m. just to write the day off because there was no internet. <laughs> and then I found out later he was on the Bell Network. But... Um, <laughs> uh, l- later in the evening, I went out to dinner with some, some individuals, and as we were out at dinner, uh, the particular restaurant we, we were at had Wi-Fi, and they had taken to the, upon themselves to advertise that they had Wi-Fi available for that day. And so there were all kinds of people at the table and people waiting in line uh, to eat who seemed to primarily just want to have access to the internet. We had gone some 12 hours, and this was almost absurd, almost unheard of. And no one knew if we were going to be stuck with an entire weekend of getting along with our loved ones uh, without devices in our faces, right? And so uh, I found it really, really unbelievable. You know, I'd expected kind of the millennials and the Gen Z kind of kids to be on their phones, and it's easy to make jokes about them, but I was shocked at how many people that I would Guests are probably closer to being grandparents than parents. Uh, were there with their iPad, you know, with size 122 font, downloading, you know, movies on Netflix for fear that they were going to be stuck the whole weekend without a movie to watch through Netflix. I was actually dumbfounded to watch a uh, table upon table of people with a meal in front of them, but, you know, with their glasses down on the brim of their nose, eating and then uh, looking to install the next book on their Kindle and the next show to download. Um, now, why do I share this? Well, I mean, I share this because it's hard to prepare sermons when the Internet's down, too. I need fun stories, and, and the, the Internet helps. Um, no, I share this because something happened in our world. And 12 Hours Without Internet caused a lot of damage. A lot of people lost money. It caused a lot of chaos. There's a lot of fear around not being able to contact uh, emergency service providers like 911. 911. And something has happened in our world that when this ubiquitous internet, the internet has been around for a while, but the ubiquitous internet and the ability to communicate so readily and so rapidly uh, in your pocket with these sort of supercomputers that we just lug around as though they're toys, uh, they have become so normal in our lives that there is no way to turn back. I really don't know that if it's possible for us to live in Toronto and at least have the lifestyle we currently have if these internet outages become a regular thing. It became essential to have internet so quickly. It became essential to have this ubiquitous internet and this access to communication constantly uh, so quickly. Well, in our story, we are closing the loop on this Shunammite woman who we met earlier in chapter 4, okay? And what we, we know about her is this. She was very wealthy. The Bible doesn't always have good things to say about people who are wealthy, but this woman is portrayed extremely positively. She was very wealthy. She married in older man, and she was without child. And in her kindness, she had prepared something of an office for the prophet Elisha as he was traveling to go into their house and to have a desk to pray at and to study at uh, during his travels. And because of her kindness to him, Elijah had asked her, what would you you like? What do you desire in lieu of this? She didn't want anything, but Elisha found out that she was without child. She did not have an error. And so he tells her that you will be pregnant. And she has a son. And you may remember the story from chapter 4. It's one of the most incredible stories in the whole Bible. She has the son. And the son's at least of adolescent age. He's out in the field with his father. He gets something of a headache or a heat stroke. Says his head hurts. He goes inside and he's dead. And the Shunammite woman seeks immediately Elisha. And she says, I didn't ask for this kid. You gave this kid to me as an extraordinary blessing for God. Did you do this just to torture me? Did you give me this child all to see this child die in his youthful age? And as you remember in the story, Elisha is not exactly sure what to do, but he lays on the child, he breathes on the child, and as we read about, the child is restored, okay? So this is the Shunammite woman. Her life, something has happened in her life that is is more... Uh, more life-altering than just carrying around a supercomputer that is this sort of uh, ever-present communication device. She has seen death defeated, okay? She has seen the one enemy that all of humanity has, death, that we all know is coming, the great equalizer. She's seen it, looked in the eyes, and she's seen death be defeated, and so in the same way these this telecommunication devices have changed our lives and, and given us a new paradigm, a new way to be human, a way that we can't think of differently without it, she has seen resurrection. She's a different woman, and she can't think differently without it. And in that way, she's a lot like any of us who might say we follow after Jesus Christ, who say we believe Jesus died, that he rose from the dead that he ascended into heaven and the power of his resurrection is being applied into our world and into our personal lives by faith as we draw closer to Jesus. What does a life look like that's marked by this resurrection? Knowing this power. Well, I think the Shunammite woman at least gives us uh, three things that we can see are markers of someone who's tasted the power of the resurrection, who knows this resurrection life. And these markers are this we're going to see that there's a special willingness that people have who have, been, have had a participation or an experience in resurrection. Special willingness, a particular, a particular watchfulness that comes upon them, and finally, a distinct witness that we can expect to see of people who have had an experience of the resurrection. So first, let's, let's look at this idea that there's a certain willingness that comes upon, that marks the life of an individual who's tasted the resurrection, who's experienced the resurrection? Where do we see this happen? What is this willingness that we see? Well, let me remind you again of these first two verses. Just listen again as I reread them. Now, Elijah had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She did according to the word of the man of God. What is this certain, this particular willingness that we see marks the life of someone who's tasted of the resurrection? It's this willingness to obey God at his word. The Shunammite woman hears Elisha's words that there will be a drought, and on faith, trusting his words to be true better than what her eyes objectively could see, she takes him at his word. It seems as though, in this point of the story, we do know that her, her husband was an old man in chapter four. I'm not saying she was a gold digger, but I don't know. Uh, it seems they were, they were very wealthy, but her husband has died. <laughs> Two of you smiled at me. Um, this is a Kanye West line. Um, <laughs> her husband seems to have died. And on the advice of Elijah, she heads to a nation which would have been the arch enemies of her people, the Philistines. She heads off uh, to their land because of the word of the prophet Elijah. She doesn't see a drought. She trusts that he has better insight into reality than her. As a parent, at least in my particular home, I don't know about your home, but one thing we're constantly teaching our kids is to obey, to obey the first time, to obey without delay. It sounds so good coming off my lips. And as a parent, um, I have bought into this lie that the older my children get, the more they will have observable experiences of my wisdom, my loving fatherly character, uh, my fun-loving nature. And they would know that I have their best interests in mind when I expect them to do something which will make obedience more and more reasonable the older they get. And of course... um, you know, if you're wondering how that's working out for me. It's not. Because the older they get, what happens? The older they get, the more aware they get that they they don't share the same priorities as their father. Okay? When they're younger, they just have outbursts of anger, and they disobey, and you're telling them to obey. As they get older, they realize uh, there's a dilemma in this relationship. My dad has certain priorities. Clean room. My teeth brushed. All this oppressive nonsense. Um and I have priorities in the, in this relationship, which is, you know, I want to keep reading my book. And so the older they get, the more they interpret what they hear from their father in a way that sort of matches their priorities. And they begin to barter and take what they can and figure out in this sort of cost-benefit game in their mind uh, how they are going to obey their father's instructions. And what I'm trying to say and what I want you to see is that the Shunammite woman shows us that maturity And our life with God, after we've experienced something like the resurrection, is the exact opposite of what we experience every day in our daily lives as we interact uh, with, with the commands that might come upon us. Of course the Shunammite woman has certain priorities. A priority would be her own safety. As a woman who's likely lost her husband, she's far more safe among her own people than she is in a foreign land. As a woman who's rich, her resources have far more power inside of Israel than they do in this foreign land with a foreign currency and a foreign system. She probably doesn't even know the language to the people with which she is going to go. But she does not care about her priorities. There's a certain willingness that marks her life, and her willingness is this, to take God at his word and obey immediately, the first time and without delay. Because she knows he's good. She knows he sees data points that she doesn't have access to. She knows his ways are so much greater than her ways. In many ways, we can understand why my children feel the need to barter with me because we do have these priorities that collide. The Shunammite woman is saying, I don't care about my priorities. They are unimportant compared to walking in step with the word of the Lord. Listen, this is the mark of someone who says, there has been resurrection power unleashed into our world. Whatever our Lord says, no matter our own priorities, our own urges, our own impulses, even if it goes against everything we think to be the right course of our mind and our head, if we hear the Lord saying to do it, we do it. If it says in his word, this is what obedience looks like, we obey. And she becomes for us a great example. Willingness to obey at all costs. There's a certain willingness that marks the life of those who've tasted resurrection. But it's not just this certain willingness. There's also a particular watchfulness that marks the life of those who've tasted resurrection. What is this particular watchfulness? Well, we start in verse 3. We we find out that for seven years, this widow, uh, this woman, sort of sojourns in this foreign land. And she returns. She's able to... Her life was preserved for seven years. She comes back to her homeland. She has survived the drought, but now the land that she previously owned, or that her husband owned, and then as it passes to her and she leaves, now would become essentially crown land. It belongs to the crown and so she needs to go to the king and make a case that she wants her land back. That's what she needs to do. And how does the story play out? Well, we get this weird uh, episode that Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, you may remember he tried to Uh, make some money off of a healing, the healing of Naaman, and because he tried to make money off of that, the Lord cursed him with leprosy. It seems as though the leprosy has been healed, and now he's become uh, welcomed in the house of the king. And what do we read happening to the Shunammite woman? Well, we read that it just so happens that the king, at this particular time, wanted to hear stories about the great Elisha from Gehazi. And it just so happened that as Gehazi was sharing the story of the way in which Elijah restored the life of the son of this woman, it just so happened that the Shunammite woman was right there waiting for her time at court, in court. She wanted to plead her case before the king, and it just so happened that Gehazi sees her and says to the king, here's the woman whose son was dead, and yet received life this is the woman who was restored we read in verse 5 the second half of verse 5 so what do we make of this well without question the narrator wants you and i to look at the story and see the ways in which god is orchestrating every detail in this story to make a whole bunch of things just so happen coincidence what do you know there is no coincidence The Shunammite woman didn't walk with a step that was a centimeter too long. She didn't walk with a pace that was too slow or too fast. The timing was perfect. And she ended up right where she needed to be at the right time so that this king could hear her testimony. There's a particular watchfulness of a person who's tasted resurrection power. And you know what that watchfulness is? It's an eye towards the providence of God. The providence of God, what does this mean? Very religious sounding. When we speak of the providence of God, we speak of God's wise, preserving, and governing all of his creatures and all of his creation. To put it straightforward, what our world would call coincidence, we see as the sovereign action of our God. There is nothing that happens in this world by chance. There's not a grain of sand down on the beach that our Lord hasn't counted up and takes, takes record of. He knows all the sand on the seashores, on every seashore. He's got a spreadsheet up in heaven. So to sp- Hopefully there's no spreadsheets in heaven. They're probably down in hell. But something greater than a spreadsheet in heaven <laughs> that has a record of all the grains of sand. And there's a line item for, for Lake Ontario. And not one of those grains of sand gets taken off that beach without him knowing it. Not a hair falls from your head, as the, as the Heidelberg Catechism says. There's a particular watchfulness of the people of God then who've experienced resurrection is that we want to see God's providence working itself out in our world. We want to see what the world would call coincidences and offer up praise to our God for the ways in which he is watching over all that takes place in this world and governing all that takes place. Now, I don't think it's just me, but this is this is an, it, we live in an incredibly strange city as it relates to this topic, of this watchfulness towards God's providence. Because in one sense, a large portion of our city actually approves of something like this. Uh, if you listen to Tony Robbins or um, you listen to any of these self-help gurus, what do they tell you to start your morning doing? With meditation of, and, and thoughts of gratitude. Start your day with a gratitude journal. Not a bad idea. And so in one sense, this idea of being grateful of how, what has happened in your past day, your past week, how, how God's plan, how plans work themselves out in your week is worthy of gratitude. However, what is so complicated in our world is this, is that our world has no time for giving that gratitude to anyone who deserves it. Giving that gratitude to God. They're all for being grateful that you happen to amass more wealth than the majority of the world population, but they're not grateful to anybody. And that's what makes this so complicated for me as I interact with you know most of my neighbors like yours wouldn't call themselves believers it's so hard for me to be watchful about god's providence when anything that i attribute to god's providence they attribute to dumb luck or coincidence and so i find myself self-censoring does anyone else do this self-censoring as you talk to people about when they ask what happened in the weekend you say it's the most incredible thing you know i was incredibly discouraged i was very very frustrated i couldn't solve a problem and a friend called and I shared with him this. And he actually had gone through it just previously and, and helped me walk through it with ease. Just the most incredible thing, the way God worked. But because our, world is, our, our, our society is so secular, so multicultural, we self-censor and we rarely share that story. And if we do, we just share it for the sake of being seen as people who are thankful. Listen, if you want to live a mundane Christian life that feels like your shoes have bricks in them, that feels like you're traversing through quicksand? Do whatever you can to not reflect on God's providence in your life. Because I'll tell you what, there's people going through really hard times in this church right now. There's people going through seasons that they don't like. And I'll tell you what they know. They know God's timing and they don't like it. They don't like how God's working out his providence. And it's amassing in their mind over and over again things, situations, they're saying, God, why would you do it this way? And when you pray with them, they're angry and they're frustrated and they're saying, Lord, why do you work this way? If you know every grain of sand on the seashore, why could you let that conversation unfold the way it did? Why could you let the situation turn out as it is? We are watchful of God's providence, but if we are not watchful of God's providence in ways in which we can give thanks to God, we will become watchful in ways that we can grow embittered at God and frustrated with his timing. Listen, it would do some of you, it would do me, really well to keep a regular journal of God's providence. A journal of all the ways you saw God work both miraculously and maybe not, so, not seeming so miraculously in your life. A journal that you could pass on to your children and your children's children. Of all the ways in which you felt like all was lost, the business was done, and the Lord provided a solution. If you do not take time to reflect on God's kindness and providence in your life, the way in which he's knocking over dominoes so that blessing might come to you, so that you might become a different person than you were before, the way he's even taking suffering in your life and making you into a person who more reflects the image of Christ, if you don't make a regular habit of doing that, I assure you, you will live a joyless embittered Christianity, and you will never pray except for when you're upset. Only when you're angry. Friends, there's a certain watchfulness that has to come upon us. Maybe if you won't journal, and I know some of you won't, maybe it needs to become a regular conversation in our church when we have coffee with somebody and when we see somebody, rather than asking, how was your week? Simply saying, where did you see God's hand work out in your life this week? Where did you see God move in your life this week? Where did you see God's loving, kind, governing Of your life this past week. As the Nova Scotia-born hymn writer Sevilia Martin wrote, let not your heart be troubled. His tender word I hear, and resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Whenever I am tempted, Whenever clouds arise, when songs give place to sighing, when hope within me dies, I draw the closer to him. From care, he sets me free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, I know he watches me. There's a particular watchfulness, an eye towards God's providence that is a marker of somebody who's tasted resurrection power. Now finally, We've said there's a certain willingness, a particular watchfulness. Finally, there's a distinct witness, and I'll be brief, but there's a distinct witness that comes upon the person who is marked by and has tasted the power of the resurrection. Where do we see this? We see this in verse 6. There's a throwaway line. You almost don't see it unless you look for it. The king asks the woman about the story of her son, and what do we read? She told him. Remember, these kings weren't uh, the most friendly to people who followed after God, who took God's word seriously. In fact, pretty much every one of these kings has been horrible and has been worshiping idols and has hated the God of Israel in many ways. And this woman, she needs her land restored. If ever there was a time to compromise, if ever there was a time to be uh, fast and loose with some of what happened, this would be it. But we read so bluntly, she told them. She told them. I don't know if she told them in a winsome voice. I don't know if she told them uh, perfectly or if she mumbled her words. I don't know how she told them. But she said, the resurrection power has entered this world, and I have seen it. I have experienced the benefits of it. And she told them. This is what it means to live in a world of the resurrection. To live in the world where we tell others, what God has done in and for us, and what we've seen him do for others. And we invite them to experience this God too. Let me conclude this way. The story ends with a somewhat strange note. Hey? Um, you see it in, where is this, in verse 6. So she tells the king all that had happened to her. And the king decides that he's going to restore to her not just her land back. That it's no longer going to be crown land, but it's going to go right back to her, which if any of you have had to deal with the government just for permits, you know that takes like a year. So imagine getting this done all in one visit. You know, this, would, this is amazing. Um, but the crown will revert the ruling, and the land will go back to this woman. And not only that, all the produce that had come from her land will be passed on to her. And she receives something of this incredible inheritance. But how is she going to get it? What does the king have to do to give it to her? Does he just say, thus is so, and it's yours? No. What does he have to appoint? He has to appoint an official to restore this land. Now, to the original audience, let me remind you that First and Second Kings aren't actually um, writing history in real time. You know, it's not as though that as this is going on, people are writing it and reading it the original audience was getting this book as the nation had been scattered all over various uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, kingdoms. And as the Northern Kingdom and then eventually the Southern Kingdom had been sacked, the history of God's working in these kings is being written down in scrolls and being sort of preserved. And God's people are gathering in just little huddles in these various places all over various empires, great minorities, having been scattered out of their land because of their disobedience. And they're wondering, will we ever get back to that land of promise? Will we ever experience a blessing? And they read this story, and what do they see? They see the Lord will appoint an official. And who was that official? Cyrus, right? Cyrus, who works with Nehemiah. And, and, and Ezra, who sends a group of people back from these scattered empires into their land to rebuild again, an official comes who gives them their land back and restores their land and restores their heritage that they once had. To the original audience, they would have been looking for that appointed official. But we know that Cyrus, as great as he was in sending the people back to the land, was a wonderful official in God's providence and God's timing. But he has nothing on an official who would come, who would be sent from the king, and his duty would be to build a house for his people and to grant to them an inheritance. And he's at work preserving that inheritance, just like the official had to go get the seven years of produce and preserve this for the woman. This official is sent from heaven into this world. He's preparing this house. He's preparing this inheritance to come down and to come to you and to me as a gift. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true servant of the high king who is going to restore all that's lost. Even if that's just sorrow and pain and tears, he's going to wipe away every tear from your eye and make all the pain, all the trouble, all the sorrow. He's going to make this markers of your glory. He's going to work together to bring good, For those who love him, out of all that we experience, and he's even at work doing it now, like the great official. Friends, our Lord Jesus Christ came, and he gave his life on a cross. You know the story if you've been anywhere around church. He died as a great servant for you and for me, that our sins could be forgiven. He was buried in the grave, and he's resurrected. He had tasted resurrected power, and now he works for you and for me, as a true and a great official preserving this inheritance that awaits for us in heaven, which will come to us on the last day, and working to make all things work out for the good of those who love him. This is what this story is all about. When the resurrection breaks into your world, our Lord relentlessly continues to pour out its power more and more into your life. And so the only conclusion I can offer you today is that you need to trust him why don't you trust him and take him at his word and watch for his providence? You say, I do trust him. I tell you this morning to trust him even more. Trust him with every detail of your life. For our great king has sent for you a great servant. He's been appointed. He will fulfill his task. All will be redeemed. All will be restored. Just trust him at his word. Trust this Christ. Your sins can be forgiven. Life of unending joy awaits in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the witness of this nameless woman, the Shunammite woman, a woman who I do hope we all have a chance to meet in the new creation. A woman who exhibits tremendous faith in godliness. A woman not seduced by wealth and who uses her resources for the good of your kingdom. Make us more like her, we pray. And in the same way she had to Depend upon this appointed official. We now depend upon your son, Jesus Christ, to make all that he has accomplished, all that he has earned, make all those benefits apply tangibly to our life more and more by the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we trust Christ at his word. We ask that you'd continue to remind us of our forgiveness and send the resurrection power to be more deeply uh, in, inside of us, into our bones, into our very being, that we are people who walk even in times of great trial and turmoil with joy. Make us into a people this, like this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.